pop culture to politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. This is not the voice of your cultural crusader. It's of one of his producers, rock star Greg Tomlin. Thank you for joining us this Christmas Eve 2020. We've got a special broadcast in store for you today. It's a Michael Medved history show recorded way back in the year 1997. Yes, you'll hear Michael right at the top here mention that it's August of 1997 when he first recorded this broadcast. And the subject matter of our program today is the Revolutionary War Battle of Trenton, which took place December 26th, 1776. Hope you enjoy the show today. And uh, for many more history shows, visit MedvedHistoryStore.com. Thanks for listening. Here's Michael. I know it's only August in uh, 1997, but where we are in 1776... It's December, and as Christmas season approaches for the Continental Army and for its commander-in-chief, General George Washington, there is very, very little cheer. song written in 1772 by Boston Patriot composer William Billings. Again, a, a song that was used on occasion at the funeral of uh, brave men who died in the revolutionary cause. Even the men who had lived and were part of the Continental Army were freezing and tattered in uh, 1776 in December. Uh, you've all read or seen references to blood on the snow because men did not have shoes. This was not an exaggeration. This was historical reality. You could follow in the retreat through New Jersey and on into Pennsylvania the uh, retreating Continentals by bloodstains in the snow. Most of the men did not have regular shoes or boots. Uh, many of them resorted to filthy rags tied around their feet, which in a harsh Pennsylvania, New Jersey winter is hardly sufficient. Meanwhile, on December 22nd, as the British in New York are preparing for their round of Christmas balls and masquerades and celebrations, as the Hessians in their encampments along the Delaware River, the Delaware River, the border between Pennsylvania and New Jersey, the Hessians are on the New Jersey side, the eastern side of the Delaware, uh, they are prepared to celebrate Christmas in a nostalgic way, the Hessians, of course, had the tradition, the German tradition, of cutting down a fir tree, some kind of evergreen tree, and bringing it home and decorating it. They had this tradition of Christmas trees, even when most of the colonials did not. They are preparing to celebrate, but on the cold, wintry, gray afternoon of December 22nd, a bizarre incident involves General Washington. Two guards from the Continental Army see a stranger with a whip in his hand and a coil of rope in another hand approaching a cow in the fields near where the army is encamped. He is cracking the whip and cursing. They believe he's going to steal the cow, and they arrest him. They um, try to arrest him, actually, and he runs away. So these two mounted guards chase him down, and at this point, the fellow takes his whip and starts whipping at them instead of trying to explain what he's doing. So they take him in. And they bring him 
to General Washington's headquarters. But when they do that, a very odd thing happens. The general thanks the two troopers for their work. And then he's in the middle of a staff meeting, but he asks all the members of his staff to leave the room, tells sentries to guard the door carefully, and he asks to be alone with the prisoner. And to the bewilderment of everyone, Washington closes the doors, and he remains alone with this captive for a half hour before emerging and turning the captive over to the guards with orders to lock him up. And that apparently is what the guards did, except after dark, some hay that was piled near the guardhouse was apparently lit on fire by someone. The guard sentry dashed to put it out, and when he returned, he saw that the guardhouse where this mysterious captive had been held had been opened up. Someone with a key had gone to the guardhouse and let the guy out, and he was gone. Now, this produced a good deal of conversation on the part of Washington's staff. Had Washington himself, who had met alone with this man, had something to do with his escaping? What was it about? We now know. The gentleman, the captive, was a man named John Honeyman. He was a weaver. He had fought for the British Army during the French and Indian War. And he had, for a time, had been a bodyguard to General James Wolfe, but he ended up hating the British. And he was a strong patriot. And he lived near Princeton, New Jersey, with his wife and his four children. And he was one of the most brilliant and effective of all colonial spies. Washington was way ahead in terms of developing what he called the Secret Service, a group of people who could inform on the British. But in order to do that effectively, he had set up a situation where people like Honeyman would always have to get themselves arrested. Then they would be brought in as captives to General Washington, and then he would help to allow them to escape. This happened repeatedly in the course of the war. His meeting with Honeyman on December 22nd was absolutely crucial because Honeyman had crossed over the Delaware River on a ferry and reported to Washington in detail about the Hessian encampment on the other side. And that information allowed the general to form his daring plan. There were three major centers, actually four, one is a smaller center, of Hessian power along the banks of the Delaware. The one that Washington decided to attack was the one commanded by a Hessian colonel named Johann Gottlieb Rall. One of the reasons Washington chose to attack Colonel Rall in Trenton was because it was Rall who had led the Hessians in capturing Fort Washington. In fact, it was Rall who had gotten the surrender at Fort Washington. It was also, as Honeyman made clear, Rall, who was by far the most incompetent of all the Hessian officers, and a good man to attack. Rall was a drunk, he was profane, and he was utterly contemptuous of the Americans. Having defeated them at Fort Washington, he repeatedly referred to them in his broken English as country clowns. Country clowns! That's all they are! And when he was ordered by General Howe to build redoubts in the village of Trenton, a village with, by the way, just a hundred homes in it, a hundred buildings altogether, some of them homes, some of them public buildings. In the tiny village of Trenton, he had been urged to build redoubts, to build fortifications, in case the Americans struck at him. And Raal said this was nonsense. He said, what need have I of redoubts with an enemy like this? If they come at me, we defeat them with a bayonet. He didn't need a fort. And meanwhile, he also had six cannon, excellent cannon. And instead of placing them on the shores of the river, 
or at the gates of the town. He uh, basically had the cannons paraded around every day, dragged around the town with this little band that he assembled, which was his pride and joy. He had an eight-piece marching band, which was the pride of his regiment. Remember, the Americans had no band, they had no instruments, but Raal loved band music, and he had this band march around for two hours every day, and the cannon were dragged behind them, and then the cannon came to rest in front of his headquarters, where they did very little good indeed. This was the target for Washington's surprise attack. Raal had 1,500 men, well-disciplined, very well-equipped, very well-fed Hessians, and they were supported by some local Tories who were very gracious hosts to them. Washington planned to get more men than that, 2,400 men, somehow across the river, to attack Raal in Trenton. And the best day to do it? Well, let us go to the remarkable diary, absolutely remarkable diary, kept by a young Irish colonel whose name was John Fitzgerald. December 23rd, Washington has just given the countersign, victory or death. He intends to cross the river, make a 10-mile march to Trenton, and attack Rao just before daybreak. Then another entry in his diary, December 25th, Christmas morning. They make a great deal of Christmas in Germany, and no doubt the Hessians will drink a great deal of beer and have a dance tonight. They will be sleepy tomorrow morning. Washington will set the tune for them about daybreak. We'll be back with the truly remarkable history of the turning point in the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Trenton, when we return. You're listening to a special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show, The Battle of Trenton. Michael Medved, back with uh, General Washington on Christmas Day, 1776. Perhaps the most fateful Christmas in, in our history. There were squadrons of American troops who celebrated Christmas in the traditional manner, at least the traditional manner of, of armies. There was a small cluster of Americans, a few hundred militia, who were fighting under George Clinton. They were up near Closter and Ramapo. For a few hours, they um, canceled their scouting parties. And as one soldier recorded in his journal, the evening ensued with delightful sports, full-flowing bowls and jolly souls, spirits elevated with liquor, and hearts inflamed by the beauty of woman. The only thing that Washington's men had to elevate their spirits were the words of Tom Paine. Washington was very taken with American Crisis, which had been published just six days before in Philadelphia. And as his uh, men assembled, standing quietly in the cold, waiting for orders, he ordered that they uh, be read the words of the American Crisis to inspire them. Then about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, on Christmas Day, the first units got underway, and an hour later, the entire little army was marching toward the Delaware River. Watching them pass by, the commander observed again how many were barefoot and were clad only in rags. And Major James Wilkinson, formerly an aide to General Lee, he had escaped when General Lee was captured. Major Wilkinson remembered ever after that their route to the river, covered with snow, was, quote, tinged here and there with blood from the feet of the men who wore broken shoes. They marched down to the river. What could Washington possibly have in mind? 2,400 men. There are more than 10,000 British troops along the banks of the river. But Washington also was going to do a coordinated assault. 
he had three different attacks that he had planned. He would lead the northernmost attack, but then below him on the river, he uh, had a uh, colonel of militia named Cadwallader and another colonel named Ewing, both with militia troops, and they were also supposed to cross, and then they would join Washington after he had surprised the Hessians at Trenton, and he hoped, driven them from their stronghold and captured some of their cannon. The entire point was he needed to do something. The army was dissolving. Unless there were some stroke, something that looked like an American victory, he knew the entire army would go home and the game would be over. The enlistments were over January 1st. Every letter that Washington wrote to anyone mentioned that fact. This is December 25th. And meanwhile, Washington's aide, the Irish colonel, Richard Fitzgerald, continues in his diary. Christmas Day, 6 p.m. The regiments have had their evening parade, but instead of returning to their quarters, they are marching toward the furry. It is fearfully cold and raw, and a snowstorm setting in. The wind is northeast and beats in the faces of the men. It will be a terrible night for the soldiers who have no shoes. Some of them have tied old rags around their feet, others are barefoot. But I have not heard a man complain. They are ready to suffer any hardship and die rather than give up their liberty. Washington's plan was this. He waited until dark to march the men down to the ferry. It got dark early, around 4.30 in the afternoon. One of those gray, wintry days that just sort of faded gradually with a little tinge of pink in the west and then faded into darkness. It was supposed to be a moonlit night, but a storm was brewing. Washington was glad for the storm because it would hide his attack. He also counted on the fact that as his spy, Mr. Honeyman, had told him, the Germans would be drunk, the Hessians would be drunk. Rahl was unprepared, he had built no redoubts, his cannon were not ready. Washington's plan was to cross the Delaware River, to use John Glover and his Marblehead men, experienced fishermen from Massachusetts, the same fishermen who had ferried Washington away from Long Island, helped his army to escape, to have them get him somehow across the Delaware. That was not going to be an easy matter, it was nearly a mile. The river was clogged with huge floating chunks of ice, the chunks of ice could easily sink a boat, some of them more than 30 feet long that would hit with great force. If you're ever there and see at McConkie's Ferry where Washington crossed the Delaware, you can see the river runs very fast and smooth in that part of the border between Pennsylvania and New Jersey. And carrying a fast, huge block of ice against a little Durham boat could easily knock it over. What Washington rather hopefully instructed the men to do was to use the poles that were supposed to push them across the river to turn aside the blocks of ice as they were advancing against the boats. It was not an easy process. And here, again, Colonel Fitzgerald. I am writing in the ferry house. The troops are all over and the boats have gone back for the artillery. We are three hours behind the set time. Glover's men have had a hard time to force the boats through the floating ice with the snow drifting in their faces. I have never seen Washington so determined as he is now. He stands on the bank of the river, wrapped in his cloak, superintending the landing of his troops. He is calm and collected, but very determined. The storm is changing to sleet and cuts like a knife. The last cannon is being landed, and we are ready to mount our horses. It was nearly four in the morning when we started. The two divisions divided at Bear Tavern. At Birmingham, three and a half miles south of the tavern, a man came to General Washington with a message from General Sullivan that the storm was wetting the muskets and rendering them unfit for service. Tell General Sullivan, said Washington, 
to use the bayonet, I am resolved to take Trenton. And so he was. Washington's plan uh, was a simple one. It was simple, but elegant. He was going to cross the Delaware River north of Trenton. Trenton, this little village where Johann Gottlieb Rahl, the Hessian colonel, with the three elite regiments of the entire Hessian army, the Losberg, the Rahl, and the Kneiphausen regiments, he was going to surprise them, he hoped, before dawn on the morning after Christmas. He had picked that time because Christmas Day was a time of, of celebrating and drinking, and he assumed, rightly as it turned out, that the Hessians would be battling terrible hangovers on the morning after Christmas. So the plan was he was going to embark, he was going to cross the Delaware River with his men right after nightfall at 5 or 6 p.m. on Christmas Day. And then they had nine miles to march over frozen roads, and he was going to divide his men, one column under Nathaniel Green that he would be marching with, and the other column under General John Sullivan. They were going to be marching on parallel roads and then hit Trenton at exactly the same time, attacking the surprised Hessians, so Washington hoped, from two directions at once. The big problem was the weather. Washington was not expecting the enormous sleet and hailstorm that came up on the night right after Christmas the night of the 25th. It was a punishing storm. In fact, a number of people remarked that the general-in-chief looked almost comical because his nose, and it's a prominent nose, you've seen the portrait on the dollar bill, his nose had turned almost bright red. It was a horrible storm. This delayed everything. The other item of delay was the Americans were very determined to bring along with them not just the 2,400 men in Washington's column. Remember, there were two other columns supposed to cross the river also, one headed by Cadwallader, the other headed by Ewing. They were not only bringing with them 2,400 men, but 18 major pieces of artillery. And loading the artillery onto these Durham boats, these flat boats that would be pushed across the Delaware with poles, and loading horses onto those boats, it was a very complicated process. One of the secret weapons the Americans had, the big lungs of 300-pound Henry Knox, the artillery commander, at the banks of the river, Knox could be heard bellowing orders above everything else. This was his chance to show what he could do with his artillery. You're listening to a special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show, The Battle of Trenton. You're listening to the Michael Medved History Program, The Battle of Trenton. They were not only bringing with them 2,400 men, but 18 major pieces of artillery. And loading the artillery onto these Durham boats, these flat boats that would be pushed across the Delaware with poles, and loading horses onto those boats... It was a very complicated process. One of the secret weapons the Americans had, the big lungs of 300-pound Henry Knox, the artillery commander. At the banks of the river, Knox could be heard bellowing orders above everything else. This was his chance to show what he could do with his artillery. They would bring the artillery along, and part of the importance of it was, as one of the people who had alerted Washington had rightly observed, Washington was going to face the problem of his men being unable to fire their muskets because of the wet. But the artillery could still be fired, because inside where that was ignited was covered and was protected. So he was relying on the artillery. They were, as Colonel Fitzgerald reported, three hours behind schedule. Meanwhile, with all of this going on, Washington wasn't the only one with spies. On Christmas morning, Johannes Gottlieb Rahl, the Hessian commander, 
received a report that across the river, Washington was planning an attack. And as a result, Raoul got his men out on patrol looking for the Americans. And around 4 o'clock afternoon, while Washington was still assembling his men on the other side of the river, Raoul thought the attack came. It was one of those freakish occurrences. A band of perhaps a dozen American farmers picked the afternoon of Christmas Day to sort of hit a sniper attack. They wounded six different Hessians. But it was purely a guerrilla attack. They came out of the woods, they fired a few times, and then disappeared. No one ever knows, to this day, who that rebel band was in that guerrilla attack. But it played an absolutely providential role. Because Rahl had been warned there would be an American attack, there was an American attack. So then he relaxed his guard. And the storm was coming up. Having mercy on his men on Christmas Day, he told them they could go back to quarters. The Hessians returned to their quarters to sing and to drink and to look at the beautiful evergreen trees they had cut and brought indoors to remind them of home. You can imagine how homesick they must have felt, most of them not even speaking English, being in this alien country, many of them in a stone barracks in Trenton, which had been built by the British to house their troops during the French and Indian War. Meanwhile, as night fell, Colonel Rao went off to uh, the home of a local Tory, at least he thought it was a local Tory, guy's name was Abraham Hunt. He was one of these amazing figures who was playing a double game. He described himself as Colonel Rao's best friend. Meanwhile, he was secretly a lieutenant colonel in the American militia. Talk about playing both sides. There is some speculation that Abraham Hunt knew what was going on and what Washington had planned. And therefore, he prepared for Rao and his officers a particularly sumptuous party where the rum punch flowed freely. Raoul loved to play cards, and he was playing cards all night with Abraham Hunt. Now, you have to imagine this. If you've never been to Colonial Williamsburg, which does a very good job of colonial recreation, then it's hard to imagine what a card game would be like in the middle of the night in 1776. Why? Because we're all used to electric lights. They didn't have electric lights. They had a few candles. It's dark. It's dingy. It's smoky. And yet, if you're drinking and it's Christmas night and you're playing cards, you can be enjoying yourself as apparently... Colonel Rahl was, after midnight, there was a knock on the door of Abraham Hunt's home. And one of Hunt's slaves, yes, they had slaves in New Jersey, they were black slaves. One of Hunt's slaves answered the door to find a well-known Tory farmer standing outside in the cold. The man said he had come all the way across the river under great difficulty from the Pennsylvania side with a desperate and urgent message for Colonel Rahl. Meanwhile, the Negro servant said that Rahl was busy with friends. He was playing cards. And the servant had been given instructions, do not disturb the colonel. So meanwhile, the Tory farmer who had crossed the river for this purpose scribbled a few lines on a scrap of paper, gave it to the servant, urged him to give it to Colonel Rahl right away, and then the farmer disappeared into the night. The few lines on the scrap of paper warned Colonel Rahl that Washington had already crossed the river and was about to attack in Trenton, that the Hessians should be ready. The servant came into the game room where the card game was still going on and Raoul was singing and drinking. He handed the paper to Colonel Raoul, said, this is urgent. Raoul immediately took the paper without reading it, stuffed it into his pocket and continued to play cards. He ended up drawing a losing hand. We'll be back and show you how right after this break. Michael Medved. While Colonel Rahl is playing cards, 
George Washington and his frozen, exhausted men, having crossed the river, somehow, miraculously, with no one lost, no boat overturned, have now assembled. They've divided into two columns, one under Sullivan, one under Washington himself and General Greene. And they are marching simultaneously nine long miles toward Trenton. They started about four in the morning. This was of great concern to Washington. He ordered his exhausted men to try to move forward at a trot. They slipped on the ice. The only light for them in the midst of the blinding snowstorm were torches that were attached to the guns that the uh, horses were dragging along. Washington rode up and down the lines shouting, Press on, boys! Press on, boys! It was indeed fatal to stop. The only death that occurred on the American side, as a matter of fact, was two men who had dropped off to sleep during the halt but could not be wakened and froze to death. They tramped past silent farmhouses, feet crunching and slithering on the ice, cannons squeaking along, and it took them the better part of two hours to reach Birmingham, where Green's division turned left. That was the division with Washington. And Sullivan's men continued straight ahead on the river road. Washington worried that they would arrive long after sunup. He had planned to arrive in darkness to surprise the Hessians more. There was another stroke of good fortune that helped the Americans. There was a Major von Dechau who worked for Colonel Rahl. Unlike Colonel Rahl, he had been worried the whole night before about these rumors of an attack. And at 5 o'clock that morning, Rahl's adjutant, Lieutenant Jacob Peel, was up and about. He walked next door to the colonel's quarters and found him sleeping. And then he went about some other business. And he canceled Major von Dechau, the regular dawn patrol that normally occurred because the weather was too severe. No one discovered the approaching Americans. You know, I wonder about this. Try to imagine... You're one of those Continental soldiers, improperly equipped for the weather. You're carrying on your back 40 rounds of ammunition, three days rations. You don't really know where you're marching or what you're doing. You're marching into the darkness. You've lost battle after battle. You've been up all night. You see this guy in Washington on his horse saying, press on, boys, press on. And you're thinking, January 1st, my enlistment is up. I can go home. Imagine the cold. Imagine the weariness. And here, let's go back to Colonel Fitzgerald's diary. He says, it was broad daylight when we came to a house where a man was chopping wood. He was very much surprised when he saw us. Can you tell me where the Hessian picket is? General Washington asked. The man hesitated, but I said, you need not be frightened. It is General Washington who asks the question. The man's face brightened. And he pointed toward the house of Mr. Howell. It was just 8 o'clock in the morning. Looking down the road, I saw one Hessian running out from the house. He yelled in Dutch. He means German. Deutsch. He yelled in Dutch and swung his arms. Three or four others came out with their guns. Two of them fired at us, but the bullets whistled over our heads. Remember, George Washington was right there, again exposed to bullets. Again, the bullets missed him. Some of General Stevens' men rushed forward and captured two. The others took to their heels, running toward Mr. Calhoun's house, where the picket guard was stationed. About 20 men... Under Captain Altenbrockum, they came running out of the house. The captain flourished his sword and tried to form his men. Some of them fired at us. Others ran toward the village. The next moment, we heard drums beat and a bugle sound. And then from the west came the boom of a cannon. General Washington's face lighted up instantly, for he knew it was one of Sullivan's guns. 
His colleague, General Sullivan, had arrived exactly on time and was attacking the Hessians from the other side. The entire engagement at Trenton lasted 45 minutes. Colonel Rahl eventually woke up. His adjutant, General Peel, tried to wake him several times before he succeeded. Colonel Rahl was badly hung over, and his adjutant Peel tried to wake him. Finally, he did wake up, and he began rushing about on his horse, trying to rally his men. But Washington had brought up, and Henry Knox had brought up, artillery at the head of every street. Trenton had only a few streets, and every exit and every street was blocked by American artillery. You're listening to a special broadcast of the Michael Medved Show, The Battle of Trenton. Trenton had only a few streets, and every exit and every street was blocked by American artillery. They strafed the streets, mowing down Hessians. Henry Knox, the commander of artillery, mentioned that General Green's troops had entered the town pell-mell, creating a scene of confusion in which the hurry, fright, and confusion of the enemy was not unlike that which will be when the last trump shall sound. They endeavored to form in streets, the heads of which we had previously the possession of with cannon and howitzers. These, in the twinkling of an eye, wrote Knox, cleared the streets. The backs of the houses were resorted to for shelter. These proved ineffectual. The musketry soon dislodged them. There was only one moment where the Germans seemed to rally. A squadron of them rallied around two cannon that were firing back at the Americans. Washington ordered Colonel George Whedon, his fellow Virginian, to send some men to disable these only functioning German batteries. Colonel Whedon sent a Massachusetts sergeant named Joseph White, Washington's cousin, Captain William Washington, and an 18-year-old lieutenant named James Monroe later President of the United States. And they, together with only a handful of others, dodged along the houses, inside doors, outside doors, and then threw themselves, threw themselves on the battery. The only two officers wounded in the entire engagement were Lieutenant Monroe, who was bleeding profusely from a ball in his shoulder, and Captain Washington, who was wounded in both hands. They disarmed the battery, put the Hessians to flight, and within 45 minutes, the Hessians had all surrendered of the 1,500 men, over 900 surrendered to Washington. Many others lay dead and wounded. Oh, and Colonel Rahl, he fought heroically. He ordered his beloved band to form up, to play band music, to rally the hearts of his men. The band was captured, and the band instruments were captured, with which Washington cherished. But Rahl was severely wounded. He continued to fight on horseback, despite a terrible wound in his side and oozing blood. Two more wounds brought him down. He was eventually carried off. Washington saw him, tried to comfort him. As Rahl was dying, they removed his uniform, and they went through the pockets, and in the pocket was that note that had warned him of Washington's attack. One of the men read the note to Rahl. He said, had I read this the night before, I would not be here now. He died shortly thereafter, and the Americans won a victory that could only be described as miraculous. We'll be back with the aftermath right after this break. Michael Medved, back with the aftermath of the, the Battle of Trenton. By 10 o'clock in the morning, Washington was galloping down the main street of the town where Lieutenant Wilkinson drew up to report that the last Hessian regiment had laid down their arms. Washington reached for his hand and smiled, a rarity for General Washington, and said, Major Wilkinson, this is a glorious day for our country. Now, there are many accounts of this battle, remarkably vivid accounts. None of them 
none of them describe the Americans going wild with joy or celebrating. Perhaps, perhaps they didn't understand everything that had happened. Some of the American troops, by the way, <laughs> did break into the uh, Hessian barracks, stole some rum, and proceeded to get very drunk, which concerned General Washington a great deal. You may remember that Washington was supposed to be one of only three columns to cross the Delaware River. At this point, as he gathered with his uh, officers to decide what to do next, holding over 900 Hessian prisoners, holding six captured cannon, holding over 1,000 stand of arms, crucial to the Patriot cause, Washington found out that both Colonel Cadwallader and Colonel Ewing, who were supposed to cross the Delaware at the same time, had turned back. They were unable to cross the river. He was all alone in New Jersey with 2,400 exhausted men who had forded the river in the middle of the night, walked from 4 in the morning until 8 in the morning, 9 miles, in a blinding snowstorm, had just fought a battle in which not a single American was killed, only four wounded, none of them grievously, as it turned out. Now, what do you do next? Given the fact that the other two columns had not crossed the Delaware, Washington made the abrupt decision, we're going to go back, we're going to take our prisoners, we're going to take our booty, cross the river, and return. It, it was an amazing moment. When you look at, at the nearly 1,000 prisoners they were taking, and very importantly, by the way, the regimental battle flags, which was part of the honor here. Meanwhile, there was one Massachusetts sergeant. His name was Joseph White. He picked his way over the field of battle, and he wrote, his blood chilled to see such horror and distress, blood mingling together, the dying groans and garments rolled in blood. The sight was too much to bear. I left it soon. Heading back toward Queen Street, he came across one dead German officer. He stooped down and took an elegant sword from the belt of that officer, and he put it on. That sword stayed with him for the rest of the time he remained in the army, which is the rest of the time that the war went on. Finally, on his way home from the war, another and a young officer offered Sergeant White $8 for the sword. That temptation was too much, so he sold it. Meanwhile, he wandered over to King Street, where he had been the one with Lieutenant James Monroe and Captain William Washington, who had helped to capture the Hessian cannon. And he went back to the spot where his battery had been stationed, and he looked dolefully at his favorite gun, the best in the regiment, as he described it. While he stood there, staring at the axle tree, which had been shattered by enemy gunfire, he was trying to figure out how he could fix it sufficiently to get it back across the river. Henry Knox came riding up on a big horse, and he told him he had better forget the gun since the army was going to pull out immediately. But Sergeant White loved that cannon, and he was determined to bring it off. He rounded up four men, one of them a seaman, and between them he managed to patch up the axle of this one gun so that the cannon could be moved. They were starting off when Knox came up again to say there was no time to waste and they should leave the gun behind. I told him, wrote Sergeant White, I rather ran the risk of being taken than to leave now we had got so far, said White. And the party moved on laboriously with their ailing weapon. Long straggling lines of infantry slogged by, too weary even to glance at the people struggling over the cannon, the five men. And finally the rear guard came abreast, passed and disappeared into the mist ahead, leaving these poor five men to struggle on through the gloom. It was getting dark. Joseph White was a matter-of-fact fellow. He had signed up in May of 1775. Now he had come to understand that all the talk of liberty and glory wasn't really what the war was about. No, what the war was about was five guys going through bone-breaking effort of hauling and shoving an uncooperative cannon down a lonely road in a blizzard. What daylight remained was fading. Rain and snow made the road all but impassable. 
and McConkie's ferry and a warm bed and home all began to seem equally unattainable to Sergeant White. And then from far to the rear came a noise, indistinct at first, then unmistakably the sound of mounted men, hoofbeats thudding and clattering on the frozen ground, the jingle of bridles, the squeak of leather. White and his buddies looked through the murk. They were sure it was the enemy's cavalry coming up to take them prisoner. But then the riders materialized, ghostly figures. Not until they were almost on top of him was White able to see who they were. They happened to be all the generals. George Washington, Nathaniel Green, Colonel Henry Knox. Once again, Colonel Knox came over and spoke to White, asking about the cannon they were manhandling along the road. It was the same one Knox had ordered left behind. White admitted, but he just couldn't bear to part with it. I wanted the victory complete, he said. You were a good fellow. I will remember you, Knox told him, before he rode off to join the others. And in a moment, the generals were swallowed up in the darkness, growing smaller and smaller until they finally disappeared from sight. It was a long while before White and the others reached McConkie's ferry where they waited for a boat to take them to the other side. And he was cruelly aware that it had been a nearly endless day. I, being weary, he said, lay down upon the snow and took a nap. The heat of my body melted the snow, and I sunk down to the ground. What had been accomplished? The British still outnumbered the Americans. Washington's army was still due to disband in just five days. But the victory electrified the American cause. The word spread incredibly quickly. This little ragged army had crossed the river, had captured the best troops the Hessians had, their regimental flags, their cannon, and all of a sudden, there might be hope. The tide turned. The Americans sang a song as they returned to their camp. The song said, Come on, my brave fellows, a fig for our lives. We'll fight for our country, our children and wives. Determined we are to live happy and free. Then join, honest fellows, in chorus with me. We'll drink our own liquor, our brandy from peaches. A fig for the English. They may kiss all our breeches. Those blood-sucking, beer-drinking puppies retreat. But our peach brandy fellows can never be beat. And that sense of invincibility, that sense that we might still prevail in this remarkable cause, a direct result of this gamble at Trenton, a gamble that paid off. We will continue the saga of the struggle for independence with so many struggles and hardships yet ahead.